This is Cardinal Francis George. I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Word on Fire Catholic Ministries is a nonprofit ministry at the forefront of Catholic evangelization, using new media to spread the faith on every continent. Father Barron challenges us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The global benefactors of Word on Fire, with the support of the Archdiocese of Chicago, now present Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, our second reading for this climactic fourth Sunday of Advent are the opening lines of one of the most important documents in the history of the West. I'm talking about St. Paul's letter to the Romans. So we hear the opening lines, and I'm going to argue that in some ways the whole of Paul's gospel can be distilled from these lines. They function sort of like the overture of an opera, where you hear the great themes of the whole opera signaled in the opening uh, minutes. Paul wrote this famous letter to the Romans sometime in the late 50s of the first century, scholars think. Most likely, interestingly, in the city of Corinth, to which, of course, he wrote two famous letters. But while he was staying in Corinth, he probably wrote the letter to the Romans. At the time of the writing, Paul had never been to Rome. So, of course, he ends his life there. But when he wrote the letter, he had not been there. It's one of the rare occasions, actually, where Paul writes a letter to a church that he had not founded. Usually Paul founded the church, got it going, and then went on his way, and then wrote letters back to it. That's true of, you know, the letter to the Philippians and the uh, Corinthians, etc. But Rome he had never been to. But he knew there was a Christian church there, which in itself I find fascinating. So Jesus' death and resurrection occurs, let's say, around the year 30 or 33. But by the 50s, so just 20 years later, there's a thriving Christian church in Rome. Now, you know, today when travel's so easy, but in those days, um, it's rather extraordinary that in that short of a time, there was a vibrant uh, church. Again, it most likely met in a home. You go today in Rome to the Trastevere neighborhood, uh, sort of south of where St. Peter's Basilica is, and that's probably where these uh, first Christians were. So Paul writes to them, and it's, by far the longest and most theologically developed of his epistles. It's the one that scholars have always loved. Now, listen to how the letter begins. This is our reading for today. Greetings from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. The Greek here is doulos Christu Jesu, a slave. Don't soften doulos into servant or something. It means slave. Paul is not merely a follower of Jesus, not merely an admirer of Jesus, not merely a devotee of his teaching. All lively options, both then and now. Rather, he is the slave of Jesus. Let that sink in, Christians listening to me. His will belongs entirely to Christ. He lives according to Christ's desires and not his own. 
you see that the conversion implied in the use of that term doulos, slave. I've often said, you know, your life is not about you. Well, that's what Paul's saying here is it's not his desires and projects. It's Christ's desires and projects. He exists thoroughly to serve the purposes of Jesus. Keep in mind, too, that you know, slavery to us is kind of an abstraction, something we read about. But in Paul's time, slaves were every place. He knew all about slaves, what they meant. He lives according to Christ's desires and not his own. This is the way a radically converted disciple talks. I take all that now from this opening line. He's a slave of Christ Jesus, Christos Jesus. We become so accustomed to the title Christ that we don't aver very often to its meaning. Christos in Greek means anointed. And hence it was used to make reference to the anointed descendant of David. Because David was the Mashiach, there's the Hebrew term, our word Messiah comes from that. David was the Mashiach, the anointed one par excellence. Therefore, in referring to Jesus as the Christ, or Christos, the anointed, Paul was acknowledging Jesus as his king. He's the new David. David was the definitive king. So he's saying, I'm the slave of a new king. It's the opening move of the letter. But we must take a further step. For a first century Jew, the king of Israel would be, ipso facto, the king of the world. For the prophets had predicted that when the son of David emerged, the definitive king, he would draw all people under his influence. King of the Jews means king of the world. So Paul is announcing himself in the opening line of the letter to the Romans as the slave of the king to whom the whole world should be subject. See how radical, how subversive that opening line is. What does he say next? He says he is called to be an apostle. Notice, please, how Paul puts himself immediately in the passive voice. He's not doing the calling. He's called. He's not proposing. He's being proposed. He's not setting the agenda. His agenda has been set for him. We, of course, put a huge premium on self-assertion, self-direction. Don't tread on me. Don't tell me what to do. I'm in charge of my life. But see, Paul, who's a slave of Christ Jesus, he has no interest in that. Just the contrary. He doesn't do the calling. He's been called by the king. And called to be none other than an apostle. The word apostle is from the root apostelling in Greek. And that means to send. 
he's been called by a higher power, by a new king, and he's been sent by that same power on a mission. Paul presents himself as a letter, as a message, as a word. Sent by somebody else. Again, your life is not about you. You're an apostle. What's he been sent to do? Listen now as he goes on. Sent to proclaim the gospel of God which he promised long ago through his prophets. The Greek word, which has had a wonderful career, hasn't it, up and down the various languages. The Greek word is euangelion here. It means glad tidings. It means good news. When Paul's time, emperors and victorious generals would send evangelists with euangelion, with glad tidings. Of what? Well, the Roman victory. Here's Paul now, mind you, writing to Rome. Writing to people gathered in the capital of the empire. And he's making a very provocative statement indeed. For he's implying that a king more powerful than Caesar has sent him, Paul, with the true message of a victory greater than any victory ever won by Caesar. In fact, the message is, someone whom Caesar killed is now the true king. See, this is not just pious spiritual talk. This is explosive. This is dynamite. This is an earthquake in these opening words of Paul to the Romans. More to it, it's good news, he says, that was predicted, strangely enough, by Israel's ancient prophets. Keep something in mind here, everybody, that Isaiah and Jeremiah were as far from Paul as, as Chaucer and Henry V are to us. I mean, they were, they were 500 years before Paul. But somehow what was happening in Paul's time was the focus of their prophecy. Indeed, the focus of the entirety of Israelite history. What was it? What is the Evangelion? Here's what he says. The gospel concerning God's Son, who was made Son of God in power according to the Spirit of Holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Now we come to the heart of it. The good news is that Jesus is risen from the dead and therefore reigns as the true king of the world. Again, keep in mind that the reigning power, that of Rome, put Jesus to death on a cross. But since God raised him, God is more powerful than Rome, indeed more powerful than any possible worldly authority. Which is precisely why Paul names this son, listen, Jesus Christ our Lord. Is that word, kurios in his Greek. Which carries a double connotation, Hebrew and Roman. In a Hebrew framework, kurios would translate Adonai, Lord. That was a term used of Yahweh himself, 
what Paul's saying is this risen son of God is God himself. In a Roman context, it would designate Caesar because Caesar was the curios. He was the dominus, the Lord. Bring them together as Paul consciously does. And you have Yahweh, the God of Israel, made manifest in Jesus, risen from the dead, is more worthy of allegiance than Caesar. He's the one who's the true king who has called Paul and sent him on mission. And finally, this amazing message carries the implication that all who hear it have the same privilege and the same responsibility that Paul has. Listen, through him, we have been favored with apostleship that we may spread his name and bring to obedient faith all the Gentiles. There it is. If Jesus Christ is the Lord and the King of the Jews, then he's King of everybody. And our job, Paul's saying to his audience then and now, is to tell the whole world we've got a new king and we've all been sent as his messengers. You know what that's called today, by the way? That's called the new evangelization, but it's signaled right back here. Lastly, Paul says, To all in Rome, beloved of God, and called to holiness, kaleo, call. That's the root of the word ecclesia, means church. That's the marching orders for us, everybody, for the church, to acknowledge this king who's sent us, set us apart, and sent us on mission. There's the whole gospel in the opening lines of Paul to the Romans. And God bless you. I hope you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George, and I pray that God will bless you and those you love.